Hello and welcome to another episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is David Emmett at Motor Matters on Twitter, and with me is super world superbike commentator extraordinaire Steve English, fresh from Thailand. How's things, Steve? Not too bad, Dave. It's a, it's a good intro you've given me there as well, so hopefully we'll be able to live up to it today. <laughs> exactly. It's been uh, quite the uh, quite the global trek for you, hasn't it? For uh, first uh, Phillip Island and then uh, and then Thailand. Yeah, it's good to get started though. Like over the course of January, I was out at the uh, Harathan Portimao tests for a few for a few days. I was then out to Australia, Thailand. So it's been a busy couple of months, but uh, it's good to finally have racing back underway and. I know that for uh, most fans, really, Phillip Island's that one superbike round where everyone watches. It's the time when bikes are back on track, bikes are back on telly, so everyone tunes in. But I think a lot of people did actually watch Buriram as well last weekend. And we're four races into the season, and you know, we do have a picture emerging for the championship. But uh, I think there's still you know, a lot of uncertainty as well that once we get back to Europe, um, we should start to get answers. Yeah, because it's funny how the the parallels between the MotoGP series and the World Superbike series, where you start overseas, uh, but no one really thinks about uh, the, the season doesn't really start as such. It doesn't start for real until we're back in Europe, because that seems to be where everyone has the data and, and knows what they're doing. Yeah, testing's that phony war where everyone's just sort of not showing their hands, and then the opening couple of rounds are the first couple of skirmishes, but as you say, Dave, because they're all flyaways, and for MotoGP it's the same where you start in Qatar, Argentina, Coda, it really doesn't uh, It doesn't show the true picture. You go to Australia for superbikes, and Phillip Island is such a unique track. It's such a, such a circuit that always provides a shock result or always provides close racing. This year, it was definitely that case as well because the riders didn't feel that they could push the tires to the limit for the whole race. So we ended up with a little bit of a Jonathan Ray compared it to a bicycle race, just where everyone's wheeling behind each other, just not really wanting to show their their true colours. And then for round two, we went to Thailand. And at one stage, the track temperature was 64 degrees. So again, <laughs> that's not going to be atypical of what we see over the course of the season. Like we'll go to Aragon next and Assen. And obviously, I don't think anyone's expecting 65 degree track temperature at Assen. Uh, no, I mean it was quite sunny here today, but um, uh, I'm fairly sure we wouldn't uh, we wouldn't be reaching 64 degrees uh, track temperature. We uh, uh, might get 24, but that would be about it. We'll start with Australia. It was actually it was it was a really good way to start uh, start the season. It was exciting races, as you say. It was a little bit of bicycle races. There was uh, there was you know what two three riders uh, at the at the front and race one. It was a it seemed to be almost a massive. A group of riders, uh, all in contention for uh, a large part of the race. Yeah, definitely. I think it was it was a good indication, really, for me, of what I think we should expect for most of the season. I think it's easy to sort of look at it and think that uh, you know Johnny's going to be be walking away into the distance, like a lot of people are saying. You know, on the basis of the fact that he has won the last two championships, he is going into the season as the title favorite. But I think Philip Island really showed us a lot of what we can expect. If you look at even Superpole. Jonathan took pole again, but it was a close grid as well. If you look at uh, between the two Kawasaki's and the two Ducati's, there was a quarter of a second. And then the Yamaha's were quite competitive there as well. And in inside the races, then, as you said, uh, we ended up with a big group at the front, all of them fighting with one another. And that uh, we could easily have had, you know, any one of three or four riders win that opening race. Five, if you include Melandry before he crashed out. 
So I think that's a that's a good indication of just the improvements that some manufacturers have made. But obviously, to to go toe to toe with the Kawasaki's or the Ducatis is going to take a lot. But it was promising in the second race that uh, we saw the likes of um, Javi Fares really step it up a lot, and it was the first time that we've seen him really at the sharp end in the dry. He had a podium last year in the wet in Germany, but this was the first time he was really in the mix in the dry, and it showed that a satellite bike on the Ducati can also get in there, and then when you factor in Alex Lowe's had a really strong opening weekend with two fourth places, it just shows what we what we could have this year, and I think if you look back to last year, there was a lot of times where it did just come down to Chaz against Johnny. Whereas I think this year we've already seen Tom Sykes have some good results. As I said, Lowe's, Fares, Leon Camier has been really strong yeah. in, in race one at both weekends as well. And that's with losing the Friday of both weekends as well so far. So it does show that the MV is competitive and, you know, the Aprilias are going to get better. You know, we'll get the BMW up there every now and then. Honda's got a lot of work to do, but uh, they'll come good as well at some stage. And I think it does just sort of show that the championship is getting a lot more competitive now again. And it isn't it isn't quite like what uh, I think it's easy to portray it as if you're just on the outside looking in and not really analysing what's happening. I think it's easy to look at this and say that, uh, you know, it's the same old, same old. But I think there's actually been quite a lot of positives from the opening two rounds and a lot that could change. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with that, especially the uh, the, the races of Philip and I was impressed. I mean, Alex Lowe's was uh, uh, came very very close to getting a uh, to getting a podium. Uh, I think in race two, um, um, did he not? Uh, yeah, he, Alex could have been on the podium in both races, but it just uh, as a side note as well, obviously with the new grid system, we've had a little bit of a shake up. Yeah, but we've actually had seven different riders lead a race already this season. Yeah. So I think that's another indication as well of just what we're seeing. Because if you look at it, um, you had uh, Lowe's on the pole in race two, but you had Melandry on the pole in um, in race two in Thailand. So you know that wasn't the case of you know a surprising bike or a surprising rider up at the front. That's a rider that everyone expects to be up at the front. And it's just interesting that when you when you look at Fares, Lowe's, Laverty of all led races. And then obviously the four Ducati rider, four Ducati and Kawasaki riders. So it does just show that uh, the new grid system will you know, generate a little bit of change, but it's still positive that we've had seven different bikes at the front. And even if you look at race two in Thailand, I think it was Lowe's, Camier and Fares that were on the front row. And that's obviously good to see as well, because it does give those manufacturers and those teams just the chance maybe to spring a few surprises in a couple of races this year. It hasn't really affected too much in terms of you know, outright race results yet. But uh, I think maybe as we go through the season, teams know a bit more about their bikes. We could see that grid shuffle, maybe just change some of the order or make it a little bit tougher for the likes of Ray or Davis or Sykes or Melandry to get through the pack. I quite liked the the changes. I, I know it's an unpopular opinion, but I actually quite liked it. It certainly made it more interesting. And in, in the end, uh, you know, Jonathan Ray in this form is always going to be there or thereabouts. Um, that's why he's won the last uh, couple of championships in a row, and that's why he's, that's why he's won so many races. Um, but uh, it still, actually seeing him do it is also uh, quite revealing. I was amazed, especially watching the uh, race two at, at Phillip Island, um, with his patience. He was very... He, because uh, he came through the field very, very quickly. I think, what, four or five laps, something like that? Um, uh, uh, yeah, Johnny got through to the front within you know three or four laps. Then we had the red flag. But 
Oh, that, no, no, yeah, but uh, I'm talking about Philip Island, not oh, sorry, uh, yeah. not not Thailand. Yeah, I mean, he got he came through a lot a lot more quickly uh, at Thailand, but in um, uh, in Philip Island, I think it took him about four, about four or five laps. So it was it was very quick, but it was just you could see him picking his way through and working his way through uh, uh, through to the front. Again, I think that was really revealing of his form of just just how well he's doing. I think he told you at Thailand that he's you know, he's never been riding so well. Yeah, he said in his uh, debrief at the end of the day that uh, basically feels as good as he's ever felt, and that uh, you know the Kawasaki is a lot more comfortable for him this year in terms of last year. If you remember, he had a lot of problems with back shifting and false neutrals and things like that. He says he doesn't really have that issue this year. But uh, I think as well as that, he's got the confidence and the patience, as you said, David, in, in Phillip Island. In race two, he only led five laps, I think. But yeah. uh, he was up at the front or on the podium spots for all bar the first two laps, I think. You know, So he was still able to get through to the front pretty quickly from ninth on the grid. But it was just to have the patience to know I can sit behind someone else and, and make my move when I have to make my move. But I think um, Phillip Island is one of those tracks where you can probably... Just give yourself that little bit, uh, bit more breathing, breathing room. But uh, you know, we'll get to some circuits like um, Imola in t- in two races time, or maybe even Aston, Donington. You know, a-, a couple of places where it's going to be a lot harder to make those moves, or at least you could lose ground in those early laps and then have to use a lot of your tire to get through. But uh, I think when you look at some of the some of the stats about what Johnny's achieving right now, as you said, David, like he has won the first four races. He's the first guy since Neil Hodgson to do that. But I think when you look at the confidence that he has to be riding with right now, because he's now at that uh, that stage where he's able to really break a lot of records, and that brings with it a lot of confidence for a rider. I think uh, you know he's won one race win behind Nari Haga to move up into third in the overall standings in terms of race wins. He's had two poles this year, which... Um, I think he only had two poles in all of last year, and uh, when you look at uh, you know his run of podiums and different things like that, he's definitely put himself into the right position now just to to keep building and keep growing in terms of what he can achieve. Like at Aragon, he'll probably move up uh, level with Troy Bayless in terms of overall podiums in the championship as well. So he's really just cementing his his status in terms of the overall history of the championship, and that's something that I think. We can forget about whenever he's doing it, and it's easy just to sort of focus on the here and now and the fact that uh, you know Johnny's been able to have all these wins or podiums with Kawasaki. But it's also worth just remembering where it's actually placing him in a in a historical context yeah. as well. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that I found intriguing, obviously, both Johnny and uh, and Chas Davies, Philip Island, both moved through the field quite easily. Tom Sykes in race two seemed to really struggle. Uh, but then we get to Buriram and uh, and race two, and he was much more because I think he was up up into about third or fourth within uh, within a within a lap or so. So he really really made a lot of progress quickly. Yeah, and that's that's the one. I actually wrote a piece on worldsbk.com just about how, as far as I'm concerned, Tom's riding as well as we've seen him ride for a long time, and for a guy that's had, I think, the best part of ninety podiums and you know over 30 race wins it's it's pretty big to say that you know this is as good as we've seen them but i think everyone had big question marks about what tom was going to be able to do this year because of those race two for, uh, format changes and uh, definitely for me i need i needed to wait and see how he was actually able to get through the pack he couldn't do it in phillip island but that being said phillip island's always been a, a pretty 
tough track for him. And to come away with the podium at, that, at the opening race was actually a pretty big achievement for him. And then, you know, two podiums at the weekend in Thailand as well. So he's actually done quite well. But it is that thing where he's still, you know, the best part of 40 points off Jonathan in the championship right now. But we can go to a couple more rounds where I think he'll feel he'll be able to to get back and really challenge in race one. And then hopefully he'll be able to do what he did in Thailand and get through the pack quite quickly in race two. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the other thing is, I think we had a fairly definitive answer over about whether riders would be using game theory to figure out whether they're going to get third or fourth and uh, in race one, depending on their starting position, because uh, Tom Sykes put that one to bed fairly definitively in Thailand, didn't he? Last corner. Yeah, but the, the podium bonus from your contract, David, it's always <laughs> worth, uh, worth standing up there. And I think it was actually something that all of us had been interested in. And I think for you know some riders, obviously the grid two shakeup will help them a lot. I think if you look at what we'll expect from the Yamaha riders through this season, you know they're not going to be challenging for the podium every every race, but they'll be there thereabouts for fifth or sixth, and it should mean that they're able to start in the front row in race two, and that gives them then the chance to build on that and maybe get a podium in the second race. They're still that little bit behind in terms of the right right pace, but you know for the likes of Sykes or Davis or Ray or Melandri, the guys that we do expect to be the championship contenders or at least the guys that we expect to challenge for race wins, they'll all be gunning for that uh, that podium finish in the first race just because points in the bag are better than you know the promise of maybe an extra couple in the next race. Yeah, exactly. A bird in the hand is worth two. In, no, no. Uh, was it? Yes, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. That's yeah. that's right. And as you say, actually, the podium, the the, the podium bonus is also uh, very important. It's uh, something that people don't tend to think about. But you know, uh, it, it can be the difference between. I mean, the podium bonuses they're on are sort of tens of thousands of euros. You know, you could buy with your with your podium bonus, you could buy yourself a very a rather smart little car. Um, Not that you would, though, David. No, 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 no. I could buy myself a, a, a couple of rather smart motorcycles, probably. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely worth going for the uh, going for the podium bonuses because you never, well, you never know what he's going to do. And races are always long, as 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 we saw. The races at Buriram, it was the the conditions were really tough in Thailand, weren't they? I mean, the heat just seemed to be. Everyone had uh, sort of well, the bikes were spewing liquid everywhere as uh, as uh, it was all overheating. It seemed like. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was definitely a case of this is the toughest conditions that the teams and riders are going to face this year. We don't have something like uh, Sepang on the calendar any longer, so Thailand's about as tough as it gets. And even talking to Melandri after the second race in particular, he said that it was as tough physically as any race he's ever had. He said that usually once you get onto the straight, you get a chance to have a little bit of a breather, catch your breath and just, uh, you know, get your focus back but he said that in thailand it was the exact opposite you were stuck in hot air you the machine was just uh, absolutely roasting underneath you and it was just really difficult for the riders to to use the straight to try and uh, just get their focus back he said that uh, really it was once you you came out of the bubble and came under braking that that's when you got a little bit of a relief but i think if you look at uh, you know park Verme after both the races you saw riders just come in Tom Sykes straight away wanted a, an ice towel on the back of his neck. Jonathan Ray had his his ice vest on. Chaz Davis came in and, and immediately put his on. And uh, really, you don't tend to see that too often. 
No, no, exactly. I mean, they they need a little bit of recovery time, but they, they usually the adrenaline of a uh, of a race sort of uh, is soothes that pain a little bit, and uh, it really wasn't that way this time around. We've got to talk about Chaz Davies because Chaz is looking very. It, it, I mean. We expected the championship between uh, to be between Ray and Davies. It was definitely that way in the first round. The second round, uh, it looked like it might be that way, but then there was a little mishap um, uh, in race two. Yeah, I've not really seen anything to make me think it won't be between Davis and Ray yet. And uh, I think it's easy to look at the race two crash for Davis and say that he cracked under pressure or, you know, he's really just... Uh, He's been affected by Jonathan winning the first three races, but I think it was just a case of a bit of bad fortune for Davis. He said that he came under breaking and was caught out a little bit by Melandry and uh, didn't really expect to catch his teammate quite as much into turn three. But turn three is a bit of an interesting one in Burry Ram because you can go the long way around the outside or you can try and take a shorter line down the inside, but obviously break a lot earlier for that uh, second option. It looked like Melandry was taking the second option. Davis was going to take the round the outside option and uh, just got caught out by it. He said that uh, he tried to he tried to stop. He tried to to think about how to avoid a crash. And one option was just to stand the bike up and try and uh, hope that the bike didn't lock the rear wheel and high side him off. The other option was then just to try and ride it out. And uh, unfortunately for him, both options led to a crash. But uh, luckily. There was a red flag. Davis was able to start at the back of the field and uh, come through. And David, like in our WhatsApp group, obviously uh, we'll all talk about what's going on in the races. And uh, I think it was it was either I think it was Cormac that said it that you know this is that ideal red flag for Davis. He's now got the second chance to try and come back, try and get a top five, maybe get the podium. And in race two, Davis did pretty much all that he could do. It was just a case of the bike wasn't quite right for me. He said that once he got in the gas exiting turn one, it didn't have the right throttle connection. So he knew it was going to be a difficult day. But, uh, you know, he was able to recover, get sixth. And really, when you look at the form Jonathan was in, sixth place basically means that he dropped 10 points in terms of his his potential points for the for the day really yeah exactly and the, well we've had we've had four races but there are still what twenty two to go yeah exactly um, and we go to Aragon next a lot of racing uh, that's a lot of racing still to be done yeah and I think uh, if you look at uh, what Davis did last year you know Aragon's always a track where he's going well he's won there five times in the past you go to Aston he was good there last year but uh, you know the the rain in uh, in one of the races did affect him quite badly. You go to Imola; he did the double there last year. Yeah, I mean you he know. has to. It, I think I think there's there's a legal uh, there's a legal uh, obligation for him to uh, for a Ducati to win at uh, uh, to win at least one race at Imola. So, well, I tell you what, it could be Melandri this year though. In all fairness, like uh, yeah, uh, yeah, was riding well. Yeah, I mean th- th- to be honest, that has really surprised me. I mean, uh, we were expecting uh, from testing. I think we talked about this when we talked about World Superbike testing. The Melandri is obviously quick, but he's um, he's completely different to the rider i remember um when he came back briefly to the motor gp paddock where he was uh, a little dark cloud of misery and now he seems to have cheered up uh, remarkably again i mean presumably just because he knows he can actually win races yeah and i think um that's 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 what he said whenever he left world superbikes that's i don't really want to go to motor gp because i know i'm going to go onto a crap bike that's not going to i'm not going to win races and lo and behold 
he went on to a brand new Aprilia. It was always going to be a struggle and he wasn't happy. He wanted out from the outset and he got out. But yeah. I think, you know, in 2014, uh, myself and Neil went to quite a few superbike rounds that year. I think Neil was at Aragon, maybe Imola, and um, we were both at Hareth. And then I was at um, Hareth, Qatar, and uh, one other round as well, Sepang. And uh, in that second half of the year, Melandri was so strong. Uh, I think he, he picked up six or seven wins just in the second half of the year alone. And, uh, you know, he left that season as really the form rider in World Superbikes. He would have looked at it that if I stay here, I can win another World Championship. Yeah. And, you know, it's understandable why he was, you know, reluctant to go to MotoGP. Obviously, if he's being paid to ride a MotoGP bike, he should put in the effort. But uh, he's at 18 months on the sidelines now and he's come back. And he just looks like he's picked up where he left off in 2014, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's the most impressive thing because uh, uh, you lose, well, not so much speed as sharpness, I think, is uh, is the way that uh, the sort of X races will, will describe it. Uh, you lose that, the difference between pushing uh hard and pushing absolutely right on the limit and the you know the 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 ability and the willingness and the the understanding of uh, of the amount of risk that you're taking um but Melandri was absolutely right on it and he's uh, you know he's he's had two podiums already um that's it's got to be very promising you've got to think he's going to get better during the season as well yeah i think uh you know, we'll go to as I said, we'll go to Aragon next, and uh, I think he won the first the first race we had at Aragon in uh, twenty eleven, and he's won there uh, on the Yamaha, the BMW, and you know he's going to try and win on the Ducati now as well, and you know it wouldn't be that big of a surprise if he's right there in the thick of things at the front in uh, in this this next round, but I think to beat Davis in uh, Aragon is going to be a big challenge, but. It's actually going to be really interesting because I think Jonathan Ray has probably picked, you know, two two racetracks where he really wants to win this season. One of them is Aragon because Chaz Davis is so strong there, and the other is Donington because Tom Sykes is so strong there. <laughs> and um, at the November test, the remember the test where it was MotoGP and uh, yeah, World Superbikes. Yeah, yeah. Me and Neil were down at that, and we we did an interview with Johnny that we were going to use in the podcast actually, and then. It ended up, for whatever reason, we didn't use it. But one of the things he said was, you know, I really want to beat Tom and Donington because it's such an important round for for him. And I think he's got the same mentality for, for Aragon as well. Because some of the first things he said to the journalists on Sunday night was, you know, I'm riding as well as I've ever ridden. And, you know, I feel so happy with Kawasaki. But I really want to win at Aragon because I haven't won there since 2015. And you're thinking that, uh, well, you know, that's 2016's one year. So it's like, <laughs> I haven't won there since three races ago. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it just shows the kind of mentality that, uh, you know, all of these guys take. And it's that thing of, they know they know when to strike. And I think yeah. uh, that's really what's going to be interesting at the next round. Because Chaz knows that he has to win there. And uh, Johnny knows that if he wins there, it really does put a bit more pressure onto his, his chief rival for the championship. But both of those guys also know that we're only two rounds into the championship so no one's going to lose the championship at this stage it's just a case of you want to just make sure you don't give up too many points and I think that's the one positive for Chaz is that last year when we left Bury Ram he was 40 points behind Ray. behind Ray 
now he's 30 points behind and he's ridden really well. He's ridden within himself in the opening three races where he finished second. It wasn't the case of, you know, I think in the past, maybe he would have pressed a little bit more for the win. This was a case of, you know, I think I can not so much settle for second, but I can accept being second because I know there's going to be races where our bike's better than the Kawasaki and races where I'm better than Johnny and that he'll be able to win those races. And I think it was a, a pretty mature approach to take from Davis. And it's just a bit unfortunate then what happened in terms of the race two crash in Bury Ram. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, uh, you have to suspect that the incredibly strong finish to last season when he won, what was it, the last? I think seven of eight. Yeah, there you go. I mean, if you, well, winning seven of eight, that's what, 35, uh, that's basically 35 points that, that he would get back. So uh, it, that kind of, that's that kind of, uh, knowing that, knowing that at the end of the season you can be that much stronger than your rivals, that's got to give you, give you that little bit more confidence. Yeah, and the one thing is that if you look back to last season, it really was a season of thirds for Chaz Davis. If you remember mid-season from Sepang, Donington, Mizano, Laguna, he was really struggling. And then we came back for the last four rounds. They'd done some some testing over the summer, found a setting solution and really came back and uh, dominated those final four rounds. And I think it's that confidence that they found that solution that was obviously the bedrock of the end of last year, but also for the start of this season as well. Yeah. And you know that's where we'll go to Aragon. And that's where, the, as I said, that's where the acid test is just to see how strong Davis is going to be this year. I think, I think it's far too early to write him off from the championship. I think people are being a bit foolish whenever you, you hear them talk in terms of, you know, Ray's already got the championship sewn up or, you know, different things like that. I think that, as I said, the championship is a lot more competitive then I think people are willing to see when they look at it uh, just from skin deep. Well, yeah, exactly. As we said before, there's 22 races to go and one DNF for, for Jonathan Ray puts uh, puts Chas Davies within five points of him and then it's a completely different, it puts a completely different complexion on the on the championship. Um, going down the, a little bit further behind, Alex Lowe's, I interviewed, I did a really big, big interview with Alex Lowe's uh, at the Yamaha launch back in February and that was... Um, uh, that was fascinating. He, he he's a, v- a very changed rider. He's got a much more uh, calm and restrained approach now. He's um, uh, you know trying to ride more smoothly. He's uh, when I spoke to him, he explained basically that the spending the time on the MotoGP bike made a big difference to him because he understood how to ride the bike differently, how to get the bike, uh, how to get it uh, to to work differently. You know, he learned to break earlier, carry more corner speed and just try to be as smooth as possible rather than try and hustle the thing around. Yeah, it's almost like whenever you can look at Lorenzo and Rossi's data that you'll learn a lot. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, who would have thought that, eh? <laughs> but I'll tell you what, he has put the lessons to good use over the winter and uh, in the opening two rounds because every time that I talked to Alex at one of the tests, he talked in terms of, I don't know how fast we're going, but I'm pleased with our consistency and the fact that we're getting as much as we can from the bike. Yeah. And that was the key thing for, for him and for, you know, his crew was just to look at what they needed to do over the course of, you know, 35 minutes of racing instead of what they needed to do over the course of a minute and 35 seconds. And that really was the key thing for them because Alex has always had, had pace. You look at what he did in 2014 when he was really quick from the outset on the Suzuki. I think he had a couple of podiums as well on the Suzuki, three podiums on the Suzuki. And uh, 
really, I think that it wasn't a case of finding speed. It was just a case of not so much calming himself, but looking at uh, the big picture. And yeah. that's where last year was really important for him because you go to Suzuka and you're teamed with Paul Espargaro and you win that race and you show Yamaha that you've got good speed, that uh, you can get the job done, that you that effectively that you don't crash. And that's that's the key thing. And then you go, you ride the MotoGP bike, you look at Rossi and Lorenzo's daddy and you take that to try and put it onto the superbike. And obviously, um, if you look at what happened on the MotoGP bike, the big crash in Aragon last year probably cost Alex an awful lot in terms of what he could do on the superbike because he was still he was still recovering from those injuries. And last year, I think he broke a collarbone, a shoulder, and then had that big crash in Aragon. Yeah. So didn't really get to show his true pace at the end of the season. But I think it probably served him really well because it is that, uh, that thing of seeing, if I crash, if I get hurt, I can't ride like I need to ride. So there's a benefit in in the long term to understand that. And I think he's really put those lessons to good use this year, because if you look at uh, Phillip Island, I think uh, in both races, he was within a second of the podium. You look at uh, race one in Thailand was probably the most impressive race he actually did this year, just because the most he could get from it was sixth place. And instead of trying to push and finish fifth or, you know, catch his teammate, he just got a sixth place. And I think that uh, maybe in the past we wouldn't have seen that from him. Maybe he would have pushed a little bit more trying to beat his teammate. And it was a mature ride. And really, that's what he has to do. And like, I know when when me and Neil were down at the um, Phillip Island MotoGP test, it was really interesting just to listen to Alex talking to to Sam about what he needs to do on, on a MotoGP bike because, you know, for the first time, he feels that he's able to actually transfer the lessons of being a big bike rider to his brother and it was yeah. just interesting that you know 95 percent of what he said was you need to slow down you need to sm- be smooth you need to be consistent and uh, really that's what he spent you know all of, all of the winter trying to do for himself yeah exactly it, exactly and it's certainly sort of paying off because he's uh in fourth in the championship um uh, close enough to close enough to sykes uh, ahead of malandry and looking looking fairly good what about michael van der mark the, the the teammate michael seems to struggle a little bit more with the uh with the yamaha but that's more because it seems like he's trying to ride it like the honda a little bit too much trying to force it to do things rather than you know just calm down be smooth carry the uh carry the corner speed um, I think uh, Mikey's actually done quite well. You know, if it was unfortunate that he wasn't able to take the, the restart in uh, Bury Ram, but uh, you know he was top five in race one in Bury Ram, qualified on the second row as well. Showed a lot of progress really from Australia because at the Phillip Island test, he looked he looked so aggressive on the bike. He was you know really as you said just trying to trying to ride like he did on the Honda where really that aggression paid off. It doesn't pay off with the Yamaha. And I think uh, in Bury Ram, we saw just an awful lot more of a smoothness that we hadn't seen in the opening round. And it's going to be interesting to see if he can do that in Aragon as well, because if you remember back to last year, Mikey was really strong in those uh, first two races. And then it sort of unraveled a little bit for him. And then that's where you know we got back to Europe and... Nicky really picked up his pace on the Honda. If you look back to, you know, obviously Mikey had the podium in Assen, but uh, for quite a lot of the races in that middle of last year, um, he wasn't the fastest Honda. And I think that's where, you know, 
Burry Ram, he had the pole last year. He had a podium. He, he was fourth in the other race. So that's a circuit that he goes really well on. And now it's going to be interesting to see whether he can translate that to the next round at Aragon. Just because, uh, you know, last year, I was looking back at uh, at some of the, the sessions just to, to get myself ready for Aragon. And uh, I think uh, qualifying was a struggle for Mikey. And uh, he made a bit of progress in both races, but didn't really didn't really do, do what he did in the opening two races where he was a front runner in both of them. Yeah. Um, uh, well, and obviously, you know, we've got Aston coming up in two, uh, in two races and the, Mr. Vandermark is going to be uh, quite motivated to do well in front of his crowd. It really does make a big difference. It's actually quite interesting sort of talking to Dutch fans because they really get to uh, uh, look forward to World Superbikes because the just just sort of like the the atmosphere is different with Vandermark racing there um, because he's because he can be competitive. Yeah, and I think uh, I remember the first superbike race I went to was Aston in 2013, and it was like a ghost town. Like I'd been there for the MotoGP for a few years, and that's what I was expecting because you know for the GP the Dutch fans are so excited; it's yeah. such a good atmosphere. And then I turned up in, like, admittedly, it was the end of April and uh, it was was cold, it was wet. And I think I was living in Germany at the time and there was, you know, six inches of snow in Dortmund as I was driving up. And I was thinking, this is just going to be the worst weekend ever. It's going to be horrendous. We got to Holland and it actually, the weather was quite quite pleasant compared to Germany, but it was still cold and wet and no one one seemed to, to be at the circuit. And then you compare that to last year where... It was absolutely packed. There was as good of an atmosphere there as what we get at the MotoGP race. And then obviously having Vandermark on the podium got the the Dutch fans uh, going for that as well. But uh, I think, as you said, David, the home race does make a difference. If you look back at the amount of pressure that uh, you know some riders put themselves just for that home race. Yeah. Um, I remember for our season review last year, I remember we were talking about Lowe's and Moto2 and you know he's he's openly said since then that uh, really that crash cost him any chance of winning the championship because it took his eye off the ball yeah because he put so much emotional effort just you know emotional energy into that uh, into that single race and then crashing out um it's uh, uh, it was hard for him to actually recover again it i mean it's always interesting to see just how much of a mental sport uh, a mental sport this is how much difference it makes well i've always said david the most important six inches on the track are the ones between your ears <laughs> and if you're not settled there you're not going to be settled on track yeah yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, the, well, talked a little about about Chavi Forrest. Forrest seems to have made a step in consistency, certainly with the uh, with the Ducati. With the was it the Barney Ducati? Yeah, on the Barney Ducati, and I tell you what, he has actually he's he's impressed me again this year because if you look back to last year, you saw constant progress through the season, and I think uh, especially once we got back after the summer break because in Germany obviously he he had the podium in race two there but I think if you look at his pace I think he went from the the fifth row in Germany to the third row at, or sorry the fourth row in Magni Courts the third row in Hareth and uh, some, something like that again in Qatar and it was just that constant incremental progress for him and I think that was good to see obviously he also had uh, you know his MotoGP race as well which I think settled his nerves a lot just to have been able to show that he was good enough to be on a MotoGP grid. But uh, it's easy to to forget just how 
you know, had little experience that uh, Fares really has though as well. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I think um, Burry Ram, again, looking through my notes, I seem to think it was about his 45th superbike start or something like that in World Championship. So he's only done effectively, you know, a year and a half in the championship. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually really like Forrest's story just because of the way that he came, that he was racing in the Spanish Championship and then he went to the uh, the German IDM Championship, the German Superbike Championship, uh, and that got him a chance uh, winning that championship, got him the chance uh, in the World Superbike Championship. It's an interesting route and it shows that there's you know it, it it's not all this same single route to uh, to the championship you can take alternative routes and as long as you're clever about it you can still you can still succeed at the world championship level yeah and i like i think just looking at Fares, i remember when, when uh you know you've got like guys like anthony west that have raced pretty much everything yeah. and Fares isn't too far behind that because he's raced one two fives two fifties super sport stock though motor gp um moto 2 um and uh, he even did like a, a car race as well last year <laughs> but he, he's raced in the italian the spanish the german and the world championships as well so you know there's been a lot of variety there for him but he's also never really been able to hang his hat in any series as well yeah so i think you know this is the first time where we've really you know seen him Go for especially stay on the same bike for two years in a row, yeah, because that makes a big difference. Stay in the same team as well, and uh, you know, I think I think we could see him really surprise some people this year because he's got the same machinery as uh, the factory Ducati riders as well. Last year he started on a different suspension make and then switched to Olin's mid season, and from that point on, his progress improved a lot. And he's on the same same kind of kit as what yeah. uh, Davis and Melandri are on, and I think that uh, this the race two format could really give him the chance to have a few really surprising results because he still doesn't have that consistency to be able to you know to run with the front runners from uh, you know a normal qualifying session, but from you know if he starts on the front row, he could be a real challenger in in race two for a podium and. Uh, you know, maybe even, you know, a couple of podiums this season for him. Um, a little bit further down, uh, the Hondas don't seem to be uh, in any threat of challenging for the podiums. Uh, a brand new bike, and yet once again, it's still underpowered. It's not producing the horsepower. Uh, it's not fast enough. It's it's a little bit lighter and a little bit better, but it's still not competitive. Yeah, I think... Uh, Teething problems would be the politest way to say what Honda <laughs> are going through, and you know Nicky Hayden and Stefan Bradle haven't uh, they haven't uh, they haven't been shy in saying what the problems are as well, and that's actually positive. Both guys have more than enough experience, and both of them know that uh, you know there's nothing to be gained from beating around the bush. They're at the end of the day, their um, their reputations are on the line. They're factory Honda riders and world superbikes, and you know you only have to look through. You know the the last twenty years to sh- to see you know what Honda expect in this championship, and um, you know they're they're not able to match that at the minute. You know the bike is the bike is poor. There's nothing. There's no other way to say it. And um, I think with riders like Nicky and Stefan, there's also nowhere to hide for Honda yeah. because Nicky won a race last year, had some podiums, and um, was really strong for most of the season. Bradle's a former Moto2 champion. He's, you know, a lot of experience in MotoGP. 
Yeah, so, a, a pole sitter and a pole sitter and a podium uh, finisher in MotoGP. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know that brings with it a certain responsibility for the manufacturer to have have a competitive machinery. And the bike came so late for Honda that really there wasn't any chance that that was going to be the case. So they've gone through the first two rounds with a bike that's still got a lot of 2016 parts. They're probably going to have you know a couple of new parts in Aragon. But it's after Aragon, they're going to have a two-day test in Portimao before Aston. And that's where they'll have to make a big step forward there. But Tenkade always bring a big upgrades pack to their home race in Aston. So really it's at uh, round uh, four where you'll probably expect to see Honda start to show a little bit more competitiveness. But it was interesting talking to, to Nicky in particular about it because you know Honda are talking in terms of this is now a development season and Nicky's 35 years of age. And as he says, I don't have development seasons left in me. Yeah. I need to be competitive. I need to win. Yeah, exactly. And the, the, I mean, to a certain extent, it's sad because there's nowhere else for him to go. He's settled with uh, uh, with Honda and he's now racing not just for, um, uh, you know, rewards this season and next season, but also for a long-term relationship when he when he retires because what a lot of riders do is they you know they turn into brand ambassadors and get paid every now and then to get paid large amounts of money to turn up at uh, turn up at events and wave to the crowds yeah and uh you know there's not too many guys that are going to be a, a bigger ambassador for you yeah. than a nicky hayden and that's where honda need to show that he should stay with them because you know maybe yeah, like it's very, it's way too early to start thinking in terms of next year, especially when we haven't seen what Honda can do. But uh, there was a lot of talk of Barney having a second bike this year, and obviously Nicky has a lot of you know long-standing relationships with Ducati as well, having been a factory rider for them in MotoGP. So you know maybe that's something that that will be talked about over the course of the season as well. So you know Honda are going to be under pressure just to make sure that they can. Uh, that they can warrant keeping the likes of Nicky and also keeping Stefan happy as well. Yeah, exactly. Yes, I, I, I remember, I, well, I, I vaguely remember that Ducati bought out a, a Nicky Hayden replica, what is it, an 848, I think, a special, a special one, and it sold out uh, in days, more or less. Just, I mean, that, that's how popular it is, and that's how, that, that's how big an impact he can have on uh, uh, on sales. And whenever I read American for, uh, uh, bike forums, they... Um, they, yes, they, they, everyone is um, weeping about the 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 lack of chances for uh, Nikki to be competitive. Really, uh, Aprilia again, they seem to be struggling. Yeah, uh, again, uh, challenging is the polite word to say for what <laughs> Aprilia are going through as well right now. I think um, the bike will come good, but if you look at what we've seen so far in Phillip Island and Bury Ram, and then also in the tests, whether it was the Hareth test in November or the Hareth test in January, Eugene Laverty had a lot of problems with the bike. The Portimao test, it looked like they'd found a solution. It looked like Eugene had found a lot more comfort and, and confidence in the bike. But that's one day from uh, you know all that we've seen so far. So clearly still a lot of work for Aprilia to do. And it's easy to look at it and think, you know, when Eugene was last on that bike in 2013, he was a championship contender. He finished second that year, won a lot of races. But a lot has changed since then as well in terms of 
the character of that bike and the feeling that uh, that the rider gets from it. And you know, I think um, he won eleven races with the Aprilia. But it's not that Aprilia he's riding anymore because if you remember 2014 was where they made the, the changes to the engine regulations that really affected Kawasaki and Aprilia. And um, I remember I was talking to I was talking to a couple of people within Aprilia and within the team about it. And they said that those changes really affected an awful lot in terms of the character of the engine. And then obviously that in turn then changes what the chassis needs to do. And while the chassis hasn't changed an awful lot since then, the engine has and the requirements for the chassis have changed a lot. So I think it's it's going to be a long road for Aprilia and SMR and Laverty to really get back to get back to where I think everyone knows they can be and where they expect to be. Like Laverty, whenever he, he left for MotoGP, he was one of the top superbike riders in the world, thoroughly deserved getting into MotoGP, but uh, now he's got to he's got to really find that footing again. And at this stage of the year, the championship's already gone. You know, he's not going to be able to give up this amount of points to the likes of Jonathan Ray and, uh, and Chaz Davis. Back. So, you know, now it's a case of trying to win a lot of races and just find that confidence over the course of the season. And, you know, I don't think anyone can really expect that they'll find it. You know, they'll turn up on Friday at Aragon and suddenly have it and keep that for the, for the rest of the year. They need to find that base setting that they can use and uh, go from there and really just uh, let uh, let Laverty build his confidence. Yeah, I mean, basically, they, they, they're they going to take two, three, maybe four rounds to actually figure out exactly what they need from the bike and uh, uh, hopefully turn it around and turn it into something a lot more um, uh, a lot more competitive. It's interesting you say the changes to the uh, to the engine affect the chassis because this is the, this is the thing about motorbike racing. That's one of the great things about motorbike racing. It isn't just we'll bolt a new engine in, put more horsepower in, and it'll go faster. Everything uh, it, it, a, a motorcycle is a unit. It's a single it's a single um, organism almost um, that uh, requires a lot of um, uh, care and attention and and detail. And you change one thing in one area, and because it's such a dynamic ve- uh, vehicle. Um, it can completely either transform or ruin another area. So you might be, you know, you might improve somewhere, but it'll make something else uh, worse or better or whatever. It always has some kind of a knock-on effect. Um, should we talk about World Supersports? Yeah, Supersports has been uh, interesting as well in the, the opening couple of races. Well, I watched the first World Supersport race and I watched the highlights of the second World Supersport race and I still have absolutely no idea what was uh, what was going on. Um, uh, I think the, the first thing we have to say is Kanan Softwoglu's missed the first two races. Um, now, normally, missing the first two races of a 30... Was it 13 or 14 race? A 12-race season, we don't go to Laguna. Oh, yeah, there you go. Well, yes, winning, we're missing two races out of a 12-race season. That's uh, th- that's a big disadvantage. But right now, I don't think it's going to make... Um, I don't think it's going to make a blind bit of difference because it's been such a bizarre start to the season. Um, the race at uh, Phillip Island was... Absolutely breathtaking, and won by well, was it a photo finish between uh, Mahias Lucas Mayas and, and uh, Robbie Rolfo? So it was Robbie Wal- Rolfo's first win in about seven years. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. Now, how old is Rolfo now? Because he's uh, must uh, he must be thirty five, thirty six, something like that. Rolfo was thirty six, and uh, if you think back to 
96. That's when everyone talks about Valentino Rossi made his Grand Prix debut. It was also when Robbie Rolfo made his Grand Prix debut. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Because I mean, you know, for me, Robbie Rolfo was was the uh, was a two fifty rider, um, yeah. the, which was what I always thought of uh, Rolfo, and I, I almost thought he was retired. Then all of a sudden, there he is, crossing the line in first, uh, right next to Mayes. It was a bit of a uh, it was a bit of a sketchy move crossing the line there. I was surprised that um, uh, was it? It was Rolfo pushing pushing Mayes uh, wide, or was it Mayes pushing with Rolfo wide? Uh, Mayes putting uh, putting yeah. Rolfo wide. Yeah. Yeah, that looked, yeah, it looked quite. Um, I, I was surprised that uh, race direction did not uh, look upon that uh, a, a lot more severely. Um, yeah, it was a one second penalty, is what uh, Myers got for um, dangerous riding and pushing uh, Rolfo off the track after they had passed the checkered flag. But it meant that uh, he kept his second place. And it was Ant West that finished uh, third in that race, just about uh, staying in front of Kyle Ride. So it was an interesting round because Ant West lost all of Friday, and uh, he got uh, because he had lost an engine. And uh, one of his mechanics for a spare engine. Pretty much, it was it was classic club racing stuff. <laughs> of uh, does anyone have an R six engine? And uh, managed to find one, but it was up in Melbourne, so it was five, six, seven hour drive up and back to get the engine. They got it fitted. It was way down on top speed, but uh, that doesn't matter to a rider like Westy at his home race as a wild card. And uh, you know he did uh, he did really well to to finish on the podium. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's impressive stuff from West, and you know that West is still, uh, you know, he, he he can still be competitive on the right uh, on the right machinery. Um, he's just he's just he, he's never been uh, smart enough about uh, about his decision making, mainly about you know working with teams, finding the right team. I remember when he left um, uh, the factory Yamaha riding World Supersport to go to to go to Kawasaki MotoGP at the time when Kawasaki sucked, um, and the Yamaha was because he won. I think he, he rode three races on the uh, on the R6. Would have been would have been a World Supersport champion if he if, if he'd have stayed with Yamaha, but he broke his contract and went to Kawasaki. Yeah, that year I think he had two wins, three podiums. And was just mega on the R6. Yeah. Also, the, the, one of my favourite wins, Silverstone, in the yeah. absolute pouring, absolutely pouring. I think he he either lapped everyone or everyone bar one rider um, before they before they sort of red flagged the race because it was ridiculous. It was the same race that James Toesland managed to hold his um, lose all of his coolant in a crash and still finish the race because it was so bloody wet that um, there was no chance of anything overheating anyway. The rain was cooling the bike basically. Yeah, I think. Uh, that Silverstone when I think he came from 15th or 16th on the grid yeah and it was it was just it was classic West yeah because it was you know that season in itself was actually classic West because I think he only did three or four races as we said he won twice had another podium but it was that no pressure and yeah. West is unbelievable but you know this uh, you know uh, Phillip Island was another one of those situations there there was no reason you could expect anything from West in Phillip Island so obviously he was going to put it on the podium yeah yeah you know yeah. his talents never been in doubt but um you know this year is another example of exactly what you get with Ant West where when the pressure is on David he was really strong you know that was a week where n- nothing could be expected of him 
So he went out and put it on the podium. But, uh, you know, the talent that we see from West, it's never been in question. He's a rider that's uh, been able to to really show a lot of speed in a lot of different classes. If you look back to even when he first came to light, it was on the uh, factory Honda team in 250s. He was, um, you know, on the Shell Advance 250, was really strong. He's been a factory rider in 250s in, with uh, Honda, with KTM. He's been a factory Kawasaki rider in MotoGP. He had, you know, it's not really a factory deal, but he had the MZ contract in Moto2, and then he, he went on to the speed up as well. So he's had lots of good rides, but there's a reason that uh, you get to 35 and uh, you know, you're know you not a full-time rider. It's that teams have given you those opportunities but they've also grown maybe a little bit, a uh, little bit weary of um, the day to day, the day to day working with uh, someone like West. Obviously, we've seen a lot of um, fracturous relationships with team bosses with uh, West in the past, and you know maybe that's something that's come back to to bite him now. Yeah, but I think also, I mean, West is a, is a classic example of what's uh, the difference between a, a, a if you like, a, a champion and a, and a talented rider. At the world championship level, it isn't about talent. The world championship level is about about the rest of it. In terms of talent, all of the top riders um, are probably of the, what should we say, uh, of the 20-odd riders on the uh, on the world superbike grid, there's probably 10 or 15 who are almost indistinguishable in terms of talent. In the MotoGP, uh, on the MotoGP field, there's probably 14 or 15 who are indistinguishable in terms of uh, in terms uh, of talent. And even in terms of talent, the difference between a rider like uh, even Maverick Vinales and, shall we say, Paul Aspargaro, the 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 differences are tiny, but the difference is in attitude and in approach and uh, your work mentality, um, all the little details, the ability to learn, the ability to change, the ability to adapt, the ability to to listen and to understand what's going on, and it's all these other things which actually make the difference between becoming successful or not. Yeah, because I think if you were to look at, you know, MotoGP is a good example because you've got Mark Marquez there who, you know, is naturally talented as far as like any other rider in Grand Prix history you could put Marquez up against them in terms of just outright talent level but there's also that hard working nature that ability to as you said the ability to learn from his mistakes to adapt and to work with his team and that's what's won him far more races than just on any given Sunday having more speed or or, or more talent than anyone else it's that ability to get the most from himself and the most from his bike and that's what separates the the really top riders from just the very good riders. Yeah, it's almost the difference between Mark Marcus's 2015 season where he crashed so much and Mark Marcus's 2016 season where he finished, uh, you know, fourth and it was causing him actual physical pain. He would be grimacing afterwards, but uh, he knew it was for the greater good. It was for the uh, it, it was for the long term goal of the, of the championship, and that's the, that's the real difference between uh, b- between champions, I think. But uh, are we going to be seeing Ant West at any more races or uh, he's still trying to put things together? Uh, well, West will be on the grid in Aragon as well on his own bike. Uh, but uh, he's going to still be racing in the Asian Supersport Championship as well. So I think that there's only a couple of clashes. The first round of the Asian Championship clashes with Aragon. But West has said that uh, his commitment is to 
world super sport when there is clashes so you know we should see him on the grid in uh, aragon and hopefully for another couple of wild cards through the season he does have an agreement in place where he's able to he's got a grid slot at any race this year as well that he's able to get the entry together right so it's just a question of assembling the financing and uh, and actually making it work yeah Going back to the World Super Super Sport Championship, the the Yamaha seems to be surprisingly competitive this year. I mean, uh, uh, obviously, Mahias came um, uh, well; it uh, uh, came very close to winning the first race. Caracasulo uh, um, uh, in the second or won the second race. That's uh, it, it's very promising. Yeah, I think uh, there's there's never really been a bad or six. And this one's hit the ground running as well, just to be really competitive. I think uh, Caracasulo could easily have been on the podium as well in Australia. But uh, obviously he had that big crash on the last lap whenever he was trying to get down the inside of Jules Cluzal in the fight for third. But, uh, you know, he's a quick rider. He's He showed last year what he can do. And I think this year needs to be a season where he he really takes the fight to Keenan Safoglu. Because when you're a young rider in the super sport class, you have to beat Keenan. Otherwise, you know, how attractive can you be to to a team in the likes of Moto Two or the the Superbike Paddock? You have to go out and really take the fight to Keenan and beat him, and that's what Nicky Tooley did last year. And Tooley as well is on the R six, and from Aragon, he'll be on the twenty seventeen bike. But uh, those two guys, they really need to step it up through the season and uh, win a lot of races. I think uh, Tooley, it's going to be interesting to see what he can do because. With that new bike, especially, he has to learn, you know, from a different bike because he's ridden the same bike for the last three or four years for Calio. But uh, if you look back to what he did last year, he he had three races, three second places, three fastest laps. So the pace is there from him. But now the big question is whether or not he can do it over the course of a 12 race season. And uh, in Thailand, he managed to finish third. And uh, really, he needs to build on that once we get back to Europe and uh show the kind of speed that he did last year as well but he's second in the championship after the first uh, two rounds and really I don't think anyone's expecting Robbie Rolfo to put together a championship challenge this year so you're looking at uh, Thule and Caracasulo they're split by two points Kyle Wright is just behind them as well Kyle had uh, a really good start to the season with two strong races in uh, the opening two flyaways Lucas Myers is only a few points behind but the big the big thing for a lot of people is that uh, PJ Jacobson, he only has 10 points after you know a disappointment in Australia where he didn't really show through on the pace that he had and was only able to finish sixth. And then obviously the engine issue in Thailand as well. And then Jules Cluzel has no points as well. So Keenan Safoglu comes back 10 points behind you know the riders that he would have expected going into the season would be the title contenders, and only you know twenty five points behind Caracasulo, twenty seven points behind Tuli. So as you said at the the start of the intro to um, Supersport, David, it's still all to play for, and Keenan's probably sitting at home, you know pretty happy with how the opening two rounds have worked out for him. Yeah, because, I mean, obviously the worst case scenario would have been that he would have been sort of, I don't know, maybe 50 points behind Jules Cluzel with a, with a massive mountain to climb. Or maybe 40 or 45 points behind PJ with a, uh, PJ Jacobson with a lot of work to do. And now uh, he comes in and Nicky, well, 27 points to, to Nicky Tooley he should be able to uh, should be able to get that back by you know within within five or six races. So it's uh, 
unless uh, because I mean the benefit of having a rider like Kenan Sofwerglu who's been in the world supersport class for so very long and dominated for so very classes is that he ends up serving as well literally the mark of quality if you if you finish ahead of um, uh, Sofwerglu then you're good and if you finish behind him then you're not quite good enough so um, uh, that's that's what they have to do yeah and that's that's the thing that that's the good thing about having a yardstick in the class is that uh, Keenan had his Moto Two chance and he had some good results. He had a podium in Moto Two, and but he never quite really managed to show what he could do in Moto Two or on a World Superbike as he does on a six hundred. So when the likes of you know Sam Lowe's was in a championship fight with him, Eugene Laverty, Cal Crutchlow, they when they had their championship battle in two thousand and nine, both of them beat Keenan. Chaz Davis has has beaten him as well. So you know. Whenever you've got those real top riders that, that went up against Keenan, they were able to beat him, and that's what you have to do. And that's really the, the challenge facing the likes of Nicky Tudy or Caracasulo because PJ's gone up against him for a few years, Tuzel's gone up against him for a few years, and they haven't been able to beat him. And that's the value of having someone that you know in terms of their outright talent and someone that you know in terms of what they were able to do at other levels. And, you know, we have that as well. The Supersport 300 class starts in Aragon and we have a couple of riders in that class that can, uh, in effect, be those yardsticks. The likes of Anna Caresco, the likes of Scott DeRue, they've raced in Moto3 and uh, we knew what they could do on a Moto3 bike and really it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't anything that was going to get them another Moto3 contract. So the guys that are racing in the Supersport 300 class, their first target has to be, I've got to beat uh, the likes of Carrasco or Scott DeRue and show what I can do. Yeah, exactly. If you can't beat Scott DeRue, then you're not going to be considered for the uh, for, for the move up to the next class. But um, uh, at the same time, DeRue is a good enough rider that he's not going to be simple. He's not going to be easy to ride. You're going to have to put in some effort to actually get past him. Yeah, that's the thing. Like The likes of Carrasco, if you remember back to... Phillip Island in 2013, she had that really good race where she finished top 10. Aragon as well that year, she was really strong. But overall, over the course of her career, she's always sort of been solid and and, and, and worth a ride, but not really uh, worth anything more than that. In the last few years, I think, you know, she's raced in the Spanish Championship. And I think, you know, going there from Moto3 and uh, really it's been a tough, couple of years for her she's going to be motivated now to be on the 300 class just because she should be on a more competitive bike in the spanish championship i think she had two years where she didn't i think she had two top 20s or something like that and a lot of that comes down to the machinery she had but now she's on a, a kawasaki and really she'll be using this as a chance to show you know what the the talent that you saw that day in phillip island i can now i can do that every week and that's what she needs to do scott derue went from Moto3 back to the Moto Star Championship in the UK, dominated that championship, and then went into Stock 600 last year. And then, you know, it was a, it was a pretty tough year last year for him. I think he had, he had one fastest lap in the uh, Stock 6 class in the UK. But if you remember, he also did a, the last couple of rounds of the Supersport class and actually did quite well in British Supersport. And, uh, you know, it was a lot more impressive on the super sport bike than i think uh, people were expecting him to be yeah uh, one thing i think that i'm intrigued about with uh, with the super sport 300 class is the different bikes um uh, they're relatively heavy and definitely underpowered 
Um, but they're definitely going to be. I mean, it's going to look a lot more like Moto Three, I think, than um, than sort of Super Sport Six Hundred. It's going to be a lot of uh, uh, a lot of slipstreaming and uh, tucking in, keeping there. I think, um, uh, yeah, the, as you say, Super Sport Three Hundred class is going to be. Uh, a proper preparation class, a class where riders are actually prepared to race. So it's going to be very interesting to watch that. Right. Well, I think that's about it for the moment, uh, Steve. Thank you very much for uh, joining us, to, uh, for telling us uh, all about what was going on in Thailand and um, uh, all around the world uh, in the World Superbike Championship. It's, um, it's, uh, it's. I think it's going to be a much more exciting year uh, this year than uh, than last year. We shall um, uh, look forward to that. Uh, look forward to the next round at Aragon. Um, uh, and thank you to everyone for listening. Make sure that if you enjoy the show, you give us a rating and review on iTunes. Make sure you follow us on uh, Twitter at Paddock Pass Pod, on Facebook at uh, the Paddock Pass Podcast. And thank you for listening and goodbye. That was... Oh, that was good, Dave. Well, uh, not according to my video. Oh, I've got my video. It was spot on. Perfect.